you please turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah chapter 42. That can be found on page 716, if your numbers are the same as mine. <clears throat> Our message this morning will be on the first seven verses of, X, of Isaiah 43, but we're going to begin a reading uh, in chapter 42, verse 18, for some context. Isaiah 42, beginning at verse 18, and we'll read through 43, verse 7. Hear God's word this morning. Hear you deaf, and look you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased, for his righteousness' sake, to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plundered with none to rescue, spoil with none to say, Restore! Who among you will give ear to this, will attend and listen for the time to come? Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk, in whose law they would not obey? And so he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Thus far, the reading of God's word this morning. Brothers and sisters, have you ever been given some really bad news? I'm thinking in particular of those who have received a hard diagnosis from the doctor. The doctor comes into the room, and you hear that life-altering news. Perhaps it's the dreaded C word, cancer. Maybe it's some other life-threatening disease. In a single moment, your world is turned upside down. News like that's hard. News like that's depressing. It can be difficult to find hope in the midst of that kind of bad news. In the previous chapter of Isaiah, the prophet spoke from the Lord and told them, the Israelites, that is, 
that they are blind and deaf in verse 18, that they would be looted and plundered. And in the final verse of chapter 42, they're told that the heat of the anger of the Lord would be poured on them and that they'd be burned up. And so it's in the context of that bad news that we hear the balm of God's word this morning. Because the Lord begins our passage this morning with perhaps one of the most comforting three-letter words. But. You see, when the doctor comes in and gives you that life-threatening diagnosis, he explains to you, 100% of those who have been diagnosed succumbed to the disease. And what happens is your heart drops. And yet imagine if he didn't stop there. But. But I'm the best doctor in my field, and we just found a cure. Well, news like that would help alleviate your fears, wouldn't it? You might, he might tell you that the road to recovery is going to be difficult, but knowing that you have the best doctor, that he has the cure, helps to alleviate much of your fears. Well, in like manner, the Lord in our passage speaks to Israel and also us today with the following theme. Fear not, for God loves you. And we're going to see that theme broken down into three points. You are his. He is with you. He purchased you. Now, before we begin our examination of these verses in depth this morning, it's important to recognize the structure of the verses. Isaiah, uh, the prophet Isaiah utilizes a structure in these seven verses whereby he introduces concepts and phrases in the first three verses, which finally find their, their center and emphasis in verse 4. And then he reverses course. And he repeats many of those same concepts and phrases only in reverse order. And because of this repetition and parallelism, what we're going to find is that the primary emphasis of this morning's message is going to be on the first four verses. Isaiah begins in verse 1 by stating who it is that's qualifying this terrible news spoken in chapter 42. It is the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant God, the creator God. He's the one who created and formed Israel. And by using the names of Jacob and Israel in verse 1, he's directly connecting this passage to what had previously been said in chapter 42, verse 24. The Lord had given up Jacob and Israel to looters and plunderers, and yet this very same God is their creator, the one who formed them. Before moving forward, we need to always keep in mind the God that is speaking to us. This is not an omnipotent God. This is the almighty creator, the shaper of his people. He is able to accomplish all that he says. And the use of these words are striking. They're reminiscent of creation itself, pointing us all the way back to the creation account in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, when God created everything out of nothing. And by utilizing this kind of language, the all-powerful God, the creator God, is telling his people to listen up. Listen up. This is what your God has to say about all of that. In contrast to that hard news you just heard, listen. Fear not. 
you think those are the words that the Israelites would have expected as they first heard these words of Isaiah? The most natural thing would have been to expect an expansion on the judgment just spoken. And yet notice that the Lord doesn't stop by merely telling the people not to fear because he's their creator. But he grounds this command in the wonderful reality of who his people are to him. The creator God. The one who formed Israel. The one who created and shaped you. Is telling his people not to fear. And the reason? He redeemed you. He called you by name. These are perhaps some of the most intimate and personal and comforting words a person could ever hear. The creator of all things, the one who formed you, is telling you not to fear because he's redeemed you, he's called you by name, and you are his. Being called by name is this intimate phrase that communicates having a direct personal relationship with God. And it involves a specific plan for the one named. One of the difficult things that uh, one of the difficult things about this passage is how uh, the English Bible is not able to translate everything nuanced in the original language. In the original language, uh, and this is the reason for this is because in this passage, the Lord uses uh, second-person singular pronouns. Basically, what this means is when we say "you" in English, it's ambiguous. Do I mean you individually, or do I mean you, you all? Plural. In this passage, however, in the original language, that ambiguity is not present. It's very clear. The Lord uses 26 singular you in our passage, these short seven verses. And this demonstrates to us the individual, the intimate, and the personal nature of the Lord's statement. Just like the Israelites, you are not to worry, and you're called not to fear. And this fact is grounded in the incredible reality that God, the creator of all things, your creator, has redeemed you, has called you by name, and in the most intimate way, he says, you're mine. What a comfort it must have been to the Israelites to hear these words. What a wonderful reality and comfort it is for us to hear these words this morning. In a kind of grand reversal, the Lord is telling his people in verse 2 that when they pass through the waters and the rivers, they will not overwhelm them and the fires will not burn them up. And the people could not help but be reminded of their deliverance from Egypt when they walked on dry ground through the Red Sea. The Lord had called and redeemed his people and made a way for them so that they were not overwhelmed. The last verse of uh, Isaiah 42, the Lord had spoken to them how the heat of his anger would set the people on fire all around and they would be burned up. And yet here we learn that they will walk through fire and not be burned. This is a grand reversal of the judgment that God just spoke to them. In spite of their disobedience, in spite of their idolatry, God is displaying his wonderful mercy toward them. You see, the people of God do not need to fear as they walk through the difficulties of life because they are his. I want to be crystal clear here. 
The Lord's not saying to his people that they won't experience incredible difficulties, even horrendous trials. He's not saying there won't be suffering. In fact, many of those who heard these words originally would have eventually been deported to Babylon. And that certainly wouldn't have been an easy road for them. And while this deportation was certainly a result of the Israel's disobedience and idolatry, some of the faithful Israelites were even carried away into exile. Just think of Daniel and his three friends. What the Lord is showing us here is that even believers, we too, may very well experience extraordinary difficulties and trials in this life, and it's not always a result of our sin. And yet the Lord is telling us that he's not telling us, rather, that the Christian life won't be full of water, even turbulent water. He's not saying that there won't be raging fires, but he's telling us that we don't need to fear because we are his. And not only is this fact that we're his a wonderful comfort, but the Lord also tells his people that he's with them. And that's our second point this morning. He's with you. Notice in verse 2 what he says. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. One of the reasons God's people don't need to fear is that he's with them. And this isn't the only place where we hear that we should not fear because the Lord is with us. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6, we're told, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For the Lord, your God, who goes with you, he will not leave you or forsake you. As the Israelites were to journey through difficulties and trials, as they faced those turbulent waters and those raging fires, they could be comforted knowing that the one who created them and who created all things was with them. And if the Lord promises to be with disobedient Israel, right in the middle of their impending deportation, how much more will he be with you in Christ Jesus? You see, this same passage and promise in Deuteronomy 31 is quoted by the author of the Hebrews in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 and 6. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Our God promises that he will always be with his children. And this should instill a great comfort in us, shouldn't it? Encouraging us not to fear. And yet, don't we all struggle with this? It's difficult to capture uh, and think of a good illustration that captures God's presence with his people, that he's with us. And yet, however inadequate, and all illustrations about God are inadequate, I hope this illustration might capture in one way how we might see this. I wonder if any of you have ever tried to teach uh, a your young child had a swim. Recently had some experience with this. I have a three-year-old. You might begin by holding your child close to your chest in the shallow end where they can touch the water and give them some security. And as they get more comfortable, you might move into the deeper waters, the deep end. And as you enter into that deep end, you might loosen your grip a little bit. Let them use their own arms and legs Gain some experience and comfort. And yet if your child is anything like mine, 
the panic sets in almost immediately. It's almost like they think you're going to let them drown. All their life they have been confronted by the fact that as a loving father or mother, you'd never let them drown. The reality of the situation is that as a parent, you're right there beside them, ready to grab them at a moment's notice. You'll not let them be overwhelmed by the water. You're with them. And you'd think that this reality would be a supreme comfort to them, that they'd be able to face that deep water without fear. Now, eventually, they usually learn that you will not let them drown. And it's the wise child that learns this lesson quickly. In some ways, aren't we just like that child? And yet we also need to recognize that we never truly learn how to swim on our own. We never grow up all the way. We always need our Father there in the water with us, near, keeping us from going under. Brothers and sisters, if the Lord promises to disobedient Israel that he will be with them, right there in the midst of their judgment, that he will not let them be overwhelmed or consumed, how much more in Christ will he not be with you when you face difficulties in this life? See, the Lord often does use trials and difficulties to grow his people, to grow their faith and dependence on him, to grow their trust. Sometimes it can feel like he's far off, like he doesn't care, like he'll let you drown and be overwhelmed. But the reality is, he's with you. He's with you in the water as you panic and splash. He's an arm's reach away. He'll not let you be overwhelmed. You don't need to fear. In fact, that's exactly what the Lord tells us in verse 5. Fear not, for I am with you. Brother or sister, he's with you. He's with you when you bury your spouse. He's with you when your business fails. He's with you when your child walks away from the faith that they grew up in. He's with you when the cancer returns. He's with you when the pregnancy test comes back negative once more. He's with you when everything seems so hard. He's with you. And this great reality that the Lord our God is with you should enable you to walk through this pilgrimage and to help you walk through the difficulties of this life. Brothers and sisters, know that the Lord is with you. He's bringing you to your ultimate destination, gathering you to himself. As he says in verse 6, for he will bring all his sons and daughters from afar, from the very ends of the earth. He will spare no expense. He'll stop at nothing to make you his and to be with you. Even when God's displeased with his people, even in the midst of their disobedience, he shows his great love for them by redeeming them and making them his. And that's our third point this morning. He purchased you. The Lord is the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And as his people's Savior, God gives Egypt, Cush, and Seba in exchange for them in verse 3. This is a reference to the extent that God went to redeem his people. And we're once again reminded of how the God gave Egypt in exchange for his people. As the people passed on dry ground through the Red Sea, what happened to the 
Egyptian army. They were completely overwhelmed, destroyed by the water. The nation of Egypt, which had already been crippled by the ten plagues the Lord had brought upon them, and now has their army completely obliterated. And this demonstrated to the people of God the lengths that he would go to deliver them and to be their savior. Cush and Seba refer to the very farthest reaches of the Egyptian territory. He gave all of Egypt in exchange for them. And yet the Lord doesn't stop there. He tells us in verse 4 that he gives men and peoples in exchange for you. And this phrase, I give men, could also be translated, I would or I will give men in exchange for you. And so when we combine this with the past tense of having given Egypt and Cush and Seba, and the present future tense of giving men and peoples, we see the great extent that the Lord is willing to go to make you his own and purchase you. However, in the original language, there's a difficult translation here in verse 4. And that's because what we have translated in our Bibles as men, in verse 4, is actually singular in the original language. The word used in the Hebrew is Adam. And if that sounds familiar, that's because it derives from the first man, Adam. And so literally it says, I give Adam for you. Now, one thing I'm not proposing is that we take a pen and scratch out men and put Adam or man. Because in context, Adam can mean, in a singular sense, mankind or man more generally, men. And that's probably the best sense of what it means here. But we can take this just a little bit further and see how this points to the second Adam. The man who was given in exchange for you. This reality that God would send his son, the reality that you are his and that he is with you, that he has redeemed you and called you by name, is grounded in the incredible fact that God loves you. We see at the beginning of verse 4, the very center and the primary emphasis of why we are told not to fear. You are precious and honored, And I love you. The fact that in your pilgrimage you're not to fear, that you are not your own, that he is with you, is then ultimately grounded in this unbelievable truth. That the Lord loves you. In his eyes you are precious and honored and loved. As unworthy as the Israelites were, as unworthy as we are, he loves you. Often when the New Testament talks about the love of God for his people, it ties two great truths, two great realities together. And the first is that the Father loved us even before he sent his Son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. And the second is that that love is ultimately expressed in the very act of sending his Son to be our Savior. We're told in the very familiar words of John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Also Romans 5.8, But God shows his love for us, that while we were still sinners, God died, uh, Christ died for us. The Lord often takes pains to tell us 
of this great love which he has for his people. In Jeremiah 31.3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And so as you face trials and difficulties, when it seems like he's busy with someone else's bigger problems, that he's forgotten about you, it can be difficult to embrace this truth. And yet there is no limit to the extent that he will go to make you his own. He purchased you with the very precious blood of his own son. This is the ultimate expression of God's love for you. This is the firm anchor that we must all cling to with faith. The fact that God gave his only begotten son for you is the greatest display. It's the greatest testimony of his love for you. Brothers and sisters, we only need to look at the cross. We only need to look at Jesus to find all the witness we need of the great love which God loves you. And so we can be greatly comforted in our own trials, in our own difficulties, even if they don't make sense. And they rarely make sense, right? By looking at Christ, we see the fullest expression of his love for us. If we put Christ and all of creation on scales, it's not a contest. Christ is worth far more. Jesus is God's only natural, beloved, and precious son. And yet because you are precious in his sight, honored, because he loves you, he gave his son that which was most precious, that by this great act you might know that he loves you. And therefore, when you face trials, when you face bad news, when the doctor comes in and gives you that hard diagnosis, you need not fear. Though the road is often difficult, though there are significant trials, you can be confident in the fact that you're his, that he's redeemed you and called you by name, that you are his. He's your savior. He gave his only begotten son in exchange for you. He's shown you by the most remarkable proof the extent of his love for you. By giving his own precious son, he shows you how precious you are in his sight. He tells you he'll be with you in the midst of your trial. When the waters rage all around and when they threaten to overwhelm, he tells you he's with you. Though the fires rage all around, they will not ultimately consume. You see, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Paul tells us this very thing in Romans 8. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Jesus Christ, you are so loved that you can face death, the ultimate enemy. Because death has lost its sting and the grave has lost its victory. It's in the perfect love of God expressed in Jesus Christ that you can rest secure. You can look to the future with hope, with confidence, knowing this isn't the end. This isn't our home. You see, you were made for eternity, and for all those who believe and trust in Jesus Christ, they will spend eternity with their God. This God, 
who is yours, who loves you, who made you his very own precious possession. So therefore, brothers and sisters, trust in this word of the Lord today. Trust that you're his. Trust that he's with you, that he purchased you in Jesus Christ. And when you face those difficulties in life, those difficult trials, you can lean on this word and fear not, for God loves you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you for the great love which you have loved us. We thank you for Jesus, for sending your only son to live and to die for us so that we might have freedom, that we might have life and life eternal. We thank you that we can look to the future with hope and with confidence, knowing that you are with us and that we are yours. We ask that you would drive this truth deep into each of our souls, that you would cause us not to fear, that you would cause us not to be anxious, and that this would be firmly grounded in your great love for us in Christ Jesus. Lord, we acknowledge our own weakness and failure to embrace this truth, and we ask that you be gracious to us, that by your Spirit you would show us Jesus. Make the reality of his finished work on the cross more and more evident in our hearts and our minds. And as these truths are embraced, we ask that it would be more evident to those around us that we are yours and that you are with us. Grant to us lives that reflect your care. Grant to us lives that reflect our identity as those who belong to the Most High God. We ask these things all in the name of our most precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.